we're going to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to get into it really quick. In fact, in the Gospels, we find that Jesus, Jesus healed the blind. This is, this is not a new kind of miracle that Jesus does, but this, is, this one is more unusual than any of the other miracles that he did in, in healing the blind. And really, we could say any of his miracles. This is just different. Um, and, in fact, let's just look at it, starting off in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he let him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, remember that, teenagers, when I come heal you. He spit on his eyes, and he laid his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to, to his home, and he, say, and he says to him, do not enter the village. I'll be honest with you, of all the miracles of Jesus, this one has puzzled me the most. It's really puzzles me. And what do you do with this? I mean, was Jesus having a lapse of power? Is that possible for Jesus? He's done, he walked on water. He raised up a dead girl. I mean, healing the blind, that's like appetizers, right? For Jesus. And it's like, here it is. And, and it's easy to say, well, maybe the man, maybe the man had lacked faith. There's no mention of that. And there's no mention of him increasing in his faith before Jesus heals him completely. And, and usually when you see something like this, it means this is not the norm. We're supposed to open our own eyes to this, and really there's something that has been building. And this goes back from a couple of weeks ago when Peyton was teaching through chapter 8. And, and we notice about these, um, you know, the, uh, the Pharisees, they, they come and they say they want to see a sign, right? They want to see this sign. They want, this, they, want, they want proof, irrefutable proof, so that there's no doubt to their faith. And if you know anything about the word faith, then you realize that's not faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things what? Not seen. And yet here they are, they want to see. But we realize they're lacking in true spiritual sight, right? But Peyton pointed out something else. They're not the only ones without sight. It's also the disciples, right? He chastises them. They don't get it. They didn't get it after the feeding of the 5,000. They didn't get it again after feeding of the 4,000 as well. And Jesus wants to know, do you not understand? Do you not see? Jesus heals the blind man, but he does it in stages. At first, he only sees shapes. He only sees light. And it says it looks like trees that are walking. And Jesus asks the man, do you see anything? Listen, 
It's the only time Jesus asked on a miracle if, if he healed them. There's something to that. And it comes right after what had just been asked to the disciples. Do you not yet understand? And he had just told them, verses right before that, you have eyes, but you do not see. You have ears, and you do not hear. So there is a pattern that is going on in what we're finding with the miracle of the blind man. That they, they have been, this guy was blind, he sees partially, and then finally he sees completely. And this is the beginning. This is actually where the book is, is in its break. There's something, there's something happening here that we are now trudging towards a place. And so we begin or continue, rather, in verse 27. So it's right after this. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? This is big. Who do people say that I am? Uh, okay, so when we go out, you know, what, what is the gossip? What's the scuttlebutt, right? What, what is everybody saying? And, and we've seen this as we've gone through Mark. Well, it's, some say you're Elijah. Some think that you're John the Baptist. Some think that, you know, you're one of the great prophets and everything. And, and he wants him to, to say what the majority of people are saying so that he comes back with the second question, which is, who do you say that I am? Folks, this is the question of the book of Mark. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because your answer has everything to do with true faith or a false faith. Can we see Jesus or are we blind? Or maybe we can see Jesus, but maybe it's just partial sight. Peter declares, Jesus is what? The Christ. Hebrew, Messiah. Defin definition, anointed one. And we're like, yes. Folks, this is the first time. Do you realize this? This is the first time these disciples make this statement. Before it was the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And, and it's the demons. Right? They're making these. This is the first time. Finally, finally, they're going to make this. And we're like, yes, they finally see. Or do they? Remember the miracle of the blind man. And let's continue in our reading. So verse 31, and he began teaching them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again and he said this plainly first time Mark says Jesus says something plainly most time he's speaking in parables right and the first time he speaks it, it is he's telling us what it meant for him to be the Christ Jesus used a messianic reference here 
from Daniel 7. You, some of you may remember it from a couple of months ago. The Son of Man. And, and just to kind of give you a kind of a brief little thing, you know, this is this, is this, this crazy vision that, that Daniel is given by God, a prophecy. And he, and he sees the Father, and there is this empty throne, and there's going to be one that's going to come and sit on the throne beside God. And, and we see that he is to be, uh, he comes from the human race. He's human. Because God, folks, think, go back to, to the very beginning of the Bible, God had planned for a human to, to rule the earth. Okay? This is the plan. But we also see that he's God. He's, he's also God. He's going to come and it says he's going to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And, and, and he's coming, he's going to destroy these beasts that are represented by the nations who are oppressing humanity. You ever felt like that in this world? And that's what the Son of Man is going to do. And yet there's no mention in that prophecy of the Son of Man that the Son of Man must suffer first. They didn't really have a completed understanding of what the Messiah was to be. Jesus had to come and show them. And even though we are like, yeah, but what about the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53? They didn't pick up on that's who Jesus is. And in class, we talk more about this history that leads up to it. And what they were looking for was a militant, a political king to rise up like David. And, and he's going to conquer their enemies. But he says here, to show you even more, they didn't get it. He says, I will suffer in the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These are the religious leaders. And he's showing that his death is not going to come through society's worst. His death will come by what they considered was society's best. Okay, keep going. Let's pick up in verse 32. We're ready for some amens, right? So here it goes. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Ah, not the amen we were hoping but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Wow, that escalated really fast, didn't it? I mean, true to his heritage, Peter balks at the idea of a, of a suffering Messiah. That's just not in his concept. That's not the way he and the disciples had been raised. That's not the concept of a Messiah. And what we're seeing here, partial sight. They're misunderstanding. They've got the right word for Jesus. He is the Christ. That is his identity. But they still are not seeing completely. They're going to need another touch. This is called a stereo-opticon. Uh, anybody remember when this was first made? Ethel does? <laughs> okay, Ethel's the only one. Uh, not you, Ola? You didn't see this one before? Uh, so this stereo-opticon, what, what it was back in the day is you, you take a picture, 
same picture and you put both pictures on each side and then you put this little viewfinder together and what it does is when you put it so far apart the two pictures mesh together and it makes this 3D picture. Really cool. Now I know you teenagers are like, they didn't, what? They had to do that to make 3D? What? I don't know why they didn't do it on their computers. It just doesn't make sense. So, so then they came up with this idea, well, I wonder what will happen if we put two different pictures on each side. And so in the experiment, they put a picture of a baseball player on one side and a picture of a bullfighter on the other side. And they let all these people look at it and find out, just say, what do you see? Guess what people in Mexico saw? A bullfighter. Guess what people in North America saw? A baseball player. And what this experiment shows is that our brains are trained to see the way we have come up in our culture. Folks, do you understand why we say this all the time about when we come back to the Bible, when we come back to these Gospels, we've got to strip our minds. We've got to act as if we've never seen this before. And we've got to try to see it for what it's meant to be seen because oftentimes we, we see the Scriptures based on our culture. And, and it could be, you know, someone, even there's a difference in the North and the South. What about someone who was raised in a wealthy home and, and yet you have someone over here who's, who was raised in a very poor home? Or, or maybe someone who came in a home that was, they were abused or, versus someone who wasn't. Or someone who was raised in, and there was a lots of prejudice towards them because of the color of their skin compared to someone who, you know, they enjoyed life because of the color of their skin a little more. And we come to the scriptures and we, we see based on our culture. You don't believe it, let, every, let several people from different cultures read the prodigal son and say, what do you read? And those who, who have messed up, those who, you know, they're just in a bad, I mean, they, they, man, they see God's grace. It's just amazing. They're just overwhelmed by it. Other people, I've had Christians tell me this, I'm not making this up, they, they are sympathetic to the older brother. And then some will take it and say, see, God is tough on sin, and he kicks people out. I mean, it's just like, how do you, this is, this is what we do. And so, we've got to be careful in how we project our own aspirations on Jesus. And Peter and the apostles do this because of their cultural raising as to what is the Messiah. And let me tell you something, folks. I don't care if you're raised in the church your whole life. You can still be partially blind. If these Jews were in understanding a Messiah, you better believe we can too. And so Jesus rebukes Peter. He calls him Satan. That's a little harsh, right? But that's just how important the mission of Jesus was. Now I want to slow down for just a moment. And I want us to ask ourselves, how well do we trust the plans of God? How well do we trust what He says? And, and you know, some of these you're like, man, I've got, I've got 20-20 vision. And you may. 
but there's others that you're not seeing clearly, and you might even admit to it. Love your enemies. Well, I think that's just, you know, if somebody, you know, not my situation, because in my, you know, forgive people who wrong you. Okay, well, I can do that the first time, but, you know, what about, what if they, like, keep doing it 70 times 7? And what if, what if they do something so awful, anybody in our society will look at it and say, yes, you, there's no way you should have to forgive that person. What if somebody killed your, your child? Or they killed your spouse or a sibling? Can we forgive them? If you're on social media, you know what I'm about to show you. Probably everybody in here, just about it, except for the few of you that don't have internet, wherever gay Stanley is. Uh, you're going to like this gay. But this is amazing. Um, this is Botham. He, he was a graduate from Harding University. He was shot and killed by this white female officer. And there was no... He was doing nothing. And, and it's a life. And if you saw the trial, or you saw at least this portion of it, really unique. I can forgive for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes.
say this about this video. Forgiving someone doesn't necessarily mean you, you hope they get out of jail. Okay. We, we definitely don't need to look at Botham's mom and wanting justice as being evil. In fact, I, I think we need to recognize that. This kid, this kid went over and beyond. And it's like, do I believe God's plans enough that I could do that? I can show you this video, but I'll just tell you there's not really any other videos like that because we don't do real good at that. We, we, we struggle to do what this kid did. We really do. I'm really glad he's a Christian. <laughs> I'm really glad what he had to say. But then we have verses like this one. Jesus says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And it's like, well, you know what? I, I really like the video thing better. I like the forgiving people of sins. But this, okay, this, that, I, that's not my concept of who God is. And we become Peter. And, but we need to understand that usually when we feel like this is not the way God would do it, it's, and yet God says this is what it is, it means we have a partial sight. We don't have complete understanding. Because I think if we did, we would understand this and we would appreciate it even more. We struggle with it because of partial sight. And it goes to, what, who do people say that I am? Who do people out in our world, what do they say that God is or who, what he is supposed to be? And the question is, but who do you say? Who do you say that I am? And can we just trust Jesus? We trust his sight because we miss it. We miss it. And that means we come to the scriptures and we see these things and we're, we're looking at these things that are difficult, but we have to say, do I trust Jesus? Or do I need irrefutable proof that this girl, that this, this brother forgave, that she's going to become a Christian, that she's going to be someone who is worthy of, you know, or are we, what are we going to do? We just got to trust Jesus. You want to know who God is. Listen, here's who God is. Jesus says, listen, I am the Christ. Here's what that means. I must be rejected and suffer and die. We get closer to, to true understanding when we get to that. But he's not finished. Let's go to verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples. All right, everybody gather up. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
Folks, he just gave us the fine print of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You see that? He will not bear the cross alone, and he asks us to rise up and to bear that cross with him. And that sounds strange to us, but it didn't sound nearly as strange to those people in the first century. Those were the condemned of society. They were publicly humiliated by their enemies, the very one they believed the Messiah would rise up and destroy. It doesn't mean we must die to be forgiven of our sins. That's not what it's being asked here. But it means that we are so committed to Jesus that we would die for him if necessary because of what he has done for us. Some of you probably heard this story a few times. It's the tight walker, tight rope walker, uh, walked across Niagara Falls. And he advertised it, and this big crowd comes out. And, and, he, and he, he says, you know, who thinks I can go across the falls and back? And, you know, no one really, really believed. But, you know, he took his pole, and he goes all the way across Niagara Falls and all the way back. And he comes back, and he says, how many think I can do it without the pole? And people still aren't real sure about that. So he puts down the pole, and he walks across Niagara Falls. Uh, don't arrest me, Liddell. I'm, I'm trying to do a straight line here. Uh, but walks across the falls, and he walks all the way back. And then he says, how many of you think I can do this now with a wheelbarrow? Take a wheelbarrow across. And, and, and you know, some of them were like, yeah, yeah, I think you can. And then others, I'm not real sure. And he goes across the falls with the wheelbarrow, and he comes all the way back. And he said, well, how many of you think I can do this with, with cement in the wheelbarrow and take it across the falls and back? And now they're feeling confident. Yeah, I think, I think he can do this. And he does. He goes all the way back. And they're just amazed, and they're clapping and everything else. And say, so how many of you think that I can do this by putting a man in this wheelbarrow and walking across the falls and back and they're all like yes you can do this we totally and he turns to the guy next to him he says all right get in <laughs> and that's a true story and we laugh at that but you know what sometimes our faith is very laughable you know I mean here we are and we as Christians we believe Jesus is the Christ he is the son of God and we're asked to live by that belief. To live by it. Not just to confess it, but to live by it. To join him in bearing the cross. And it's here that we truly find who is it that really believes and trusts Jesus and who is it that really doesn't. Do we ask Jesus and say, what path do you want me to go and you follow it? Or do you want Jesus just to follow you in whatever path that you have chosen? You know, sometimes we look for those kingly feelings. Those times where we feel God. Let me tell you, the disciples had those moments. We don't need to, to downplay that at all. I mean, can you imagine being in the presence of Jesus and seeing the things that He did and hearing the things that He said? But... And so we're going to have those times where we're going to have this sense of awe. But what we can't do, folks, is we cannot turn our Christianity into a self-gratification. What does he say? Deny self. And he's showing what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. Yes, you're going to have those wonderful feelings, those wonderful times. But he says, I'm asking you to take up a cross 
and follow me. We must do more than survey the wondrous cross. We've got to do more than cherish the old rugged cross. We are to bear a cross. We're to live by the cross. We're not asked to wear a cross around our neck. We're asked to carry one. And that doesn't mean that if you have Christian jewelry, you're wrong, or if you sing those songs that you're some kind of hypocrite. That's not what that means. It just means we just need to understand what it really means to bear the cross of Jesus. Jesus just puts it out there, doesn't he? If you want to save your life, you've got to lose your life. And if you really want to find life, then you've got to lose the life of yourself and what is pleasurable to you. Mark's first readers literally faced death for their faith in Jesus. Most of us haven't dealt with that. And yet we can be tempted to retreat at the first offer of being embarrassed for being a follower of Jesus or standing up for our faith when, when those out there are saying something different as to what they believe God is. And we feel like we've got to give in to that pressure rather than, than staying true to who God is and what he calls us to be. If your goal is to have comfort, you're going to lose the life that's worth living. Those who sacrifice, they gain life. Don't sell your soul for anything in this world that is utterly worthless. We live in a consumer society, don't we? And if we say that it doesn't creep into the church, we, we're not just partially blind. <laughs> we are blind to that. And, and look, we do it. We do it with our churches, don't we? You know, do you offer exciting worship? Do you have a youth program? Do you have a kids program? Do you, you know, is the preacher decent? You know, I mean, what kind of facilities do you have? And those things are not evil in and of themselves. But many who want the best, they fail to sacrifice to have the best that we can have in Christ. Let's go back to Mark. We got one more verse. Believe it or not, chapter 9, verse 1. Verse 1 goes with the rest of it. You do realize the Holy Spirit did not put in chapters and verses, right? And in fact, if you're uh, if you're waiting on the Lord's Supper, you can go on back now. I'll give you time to do that. We're going to get ready to do this in just a moment. But I want us to look at chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. He says the power is coming. What is this power? I believe, based on the text, I, I used to think it was something else. I really believe, if you take this contextually, my true belief is this is resurrection of Jesus. He just speaks of his death, and there is going to be a power that is absolutely going to transform the world. It's going to transform death as we know it. The kingdom of God will have broken in. But we're getting ready to do the Lord's Supper. We're getting ready to partake of the bread and the cup. 
And this is a very special moment for us. And I wanted to do this coming right out of what Jesus says, what it means to be the Christ. It means that he must go, he must suffer, be rejected, and he must die and resurrect. And here's the beautiful thing. We live on the other side of the resurrection. They're still, they're still partially blind here. You know, they just have partial sight. But we're given sight, folks. We take this, this bread and this cup at a time of resurrection. And, and we're supposed to reflect on this. Jesus wants us to take these elements to remember what he says and for us to reflect upon ourselves and together as a people. This is a communion, folks. It's a time of communion for us to look at our lives and say, am I really taking up my cross and following Jesus? Is that who I am? And, and you know what? Here's the thing. You're going to look at it and say, man, I failed on some things. I know I did. Every week I can come in and I can guarantee you I can point some things that I just didn't do this right. And that's why I sit and I bask in the absolute grace and mercy of God. And, and I just want to get closer to Him. And this is a time we don't forget. We're getting ready to partake of the bread. Let's bow. Father, we come to you. We thank you for your blessing. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the life that he willingly gave up for ours. We thank you, Father, for the perfect sacrifice that he gave. And, and though, Father, we know that we are to take up our cross as well, we just don't do it as well as Jesus. We never could. And so, Father, at this moment, we come before you as a community of believers and we thank you and we praise you and we sit and we just are in wonder and awe of what you have done for us. And Father, may we reflect at this moment of what that means to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.